Hey, good morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke 4. And uh, we're going to be diving in. If you uh, don't have a Bible, grab one from the pew. And it's actually page 727. I looked it up for you. And if you've got a phone or a tablet, you're already there. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, um, just pray that you would meet us in this place. As we sang, Lord, um, Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We ask that you would speak through your word to us. You would uh, show us what it is to look more like Jesus. And Lord, I pray that um, this would be a time that you would redeem and you would use it for your good purposes and for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was almost um, a year ago now, I was, uh, had my two older boys and we were in New Mexico skiing and we were standing on the side of a mountain and looking down the steepest blue slope that we could find. And, uh, and, and this was significant because I could actually see the black slopes right there, but we weren't going there. This is the blue slopes. I had my 10-year-old and my 7-year-old and this was all of their fourth day ever skiing. And I'm looking at this thinking, this isn't a good idea. But they were, they were very um, insistent. Dad, you gotta let us try it. You gotta let us do this. And they'd done really well. But I'm looking over this and I'm thinking, this isn't a great idea. What would your mom say? She would not say yes. But your mom's not here, so we're gonna go for it. <laughs> and so my 10-year-old, I said, but hey guys, listen up. This is what you gotta do. When you step off, when you push your skis over that, like right now it's all good and well, but as soon as your skis go over, you're gonna feel a very strong, what we call gravity, gravitational pull on you that's gonna send you hurtling down this mountain unless, unless you resist, unless you, you keep control. So you gotta keep your skis tight, do some S curves, you've been working on these, right? And, and when it starts to level out a little bit, then go for it, okay? But when we start up here, this is too steep. If your skis get pointed downhill, you are gonna be gone. So my 10-year-old, he's gonna go first, right, big brother? So he gets up, gets started, great, control, S-curves down here, it starts to level off and he's good, he's coasting, it's all fine. My seven-year-old, a little smaller, gets started, he makes it through half of one S and gravity wins. And his skis point straight downhill and he is gone over a little ridge, and I, out of sight. Can't see him, disappears completely. At this point, dad is hyperventilating. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world has just happened? I am not even moving, I'm just frozen. And then I see him, this little bitty body down there, still on his skis, and he's still going. <sighs> Around a curve and he's gone, out of sight. I think, oh my goodness, he survived one leg. There's no, I gotta go after him. So I catch up to my older son and I said, we gotta go catch up with Jude. So we take off and I go around one curve. He's still not there. The whole time I'm praying and I'm just, I'm just picturing in my mind, I'm gonna be picking up little broken pieces of my son. And what am I gonna tell his mom? Honey, I turned away for a moment. I don't know what, I took my eye off them. They just went. I don't know what they were thinking excuses are flying through my head. Finally get around the second curve and there he is. Incredibly, he is, he's hit a bit of a ridge and he's just perched up there, totally fine. And of course he's seven, he's pumped. He's like, dad, did you see that? That was awesome. I said, buddy, I did. That was so great, that was awesome. You're never doing that again. 
we're going home. <laughs> we're out. There is a pull in our world, and you feel it. It's like a gravitational pull, and it is pulling us down, for lack of a better word. And it's pulling on us, and it's taking us places that we don't want to go, and it is taking us to all the wrong things in the world and everything that's wrong about us. Where we hurt instead of heal, we curse instead of bless, we look out for ourselves and prioritize ourselves above everybody else. We're only looking out for ourselves. And this pull, this, this gravitational pull that we all feel, and man, is this so real today. We feel it. And, and if we give into it, it's the easiest thing in the world, right? To, to give into it, it's like falling down a mountain. All you have to do is nothing. All you have to do is don't resist. And the problem is that if, if we don't resist, if we just let that gravitational pull have its way with us, it will take us places that we do not want to go. And it will make us into people that we do not want to be. Kevin started a series this past Sunday, a series we're going to be in for a few weeks as we're, we're looking at the life of Jesus and we're talking about how can we look more like Jesus what does it mean to emulate him in his life? And it's, it's not a simple question in one sense because remember Jesus, he is fully human. He is just like us except that he's also fully God. And so at one level we have to ask the question, what does it mean to look like this God-man? Someone who is fully God and yet fully divine. And so what I want to do this morning as part of this conversation is to look at this passage in Luke 4. It's one that's probably familiar to a lot of you. It's, it's the temptations of Jesus when he goes into the wilderness and Satan meets him and tempts him. Because what I want us to see is that, that Jesus, he experiences this gravitational pull, this temptation, and he resists. And like Jesus, you and I, we have to resist. So if you have your Bible, we're in chapter four. As I said, we're looking at verse one. Let's dive in, okay? So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan. Now, the Jordan is referenced back to Luke 3. In Luke 3, Jesus goes into the Jordan and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And, and the heavens open up and the Spirit of God descends upon him, the Holy Spirit. And he hears the voice of his father who says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. So that's where he has just come from, up from the Jordan. And he is led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now another way to read this, and, and my translation doesn't reflect it, but maybe yours does, is, is this actually has this sense of, of a wholeness, completeness. It's more uh, to say at the end of 40 days, as the 40 days are complete, he's tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. No kidding. All right, so before we go any further, it'd be really easy for us to read over this very quickly, okay? But I want us to stop, I want us to slow down for a moment and consider the fact that we live in the 21st century, uh, that, that we are um, living in a secular age, that we, even within the church, for all practical purposes, oftentimes we live as materialists. But what this world is that, that Luke is describing for us this is, a, this is a spiritual world. This is a spiritual realm. There are things going on that we don't see and that we don't fully understand. 
I mean, here we have the Holy Spirit who is leading Jesus into the wilderness, but then he is tempted by the devil, by Satan. We don't talk a whole lot about Satan. See, for practical purposes, it's pretty easy to get by just with what we can see and touch and feel, right? And in some ways, we've sort of made a deal with the world that we will sort of all operate at that level and it becomes very easy to then interpret, even for those of us who are believers, who believe that this world is, is real, that it exists, it becomes easy for us to lose sight of that and simply operate in the world the way everyone else does. That this is all there is. There's nothing else going on. Well, we have to understand that, first of all, we are the minority view in the world to think that there is no spiritual realm. Right, within our society where that is accepted, that is by far the minority view, even in the world today, most people believe that there's some sort of spiritual reality that's going on that is beyond what we can see with our eyes. But even within our sort of world, if you will, even within uh, uh, the United States, the Western world, Western civilization, this idea of no spiritual realm, this secularism, this materialism, this is only within the last few hundred years. We have to get through the scientific revolution and through the post-enlightenment, and then there's a number of other things that, that move the church even in different directions to the point that, that some churches, not all, but churches have all but given up on talking about spiritual realities. I mean, we're, we're comfortable with God. We have to believe in God. We're comfortable with Jesus, Son of God, fully man, fully God, mystery in there. Uh, the Holy Spirit, a little bit uncomfortable, not totally sure what to do with him, but once we start getting into angels and demons and devils and so forth, well, hold on, like super uncomfortable. Not something we deal with a whole lot. Not something we think about a whole lot. But up until a few hundred years ago, the church talked about this all the time. This was very much a part of their everyday reality. And they wrote about it, they preached about it, they talked about it, they talked about how are you going to resist temptation? When the devil comes and tempts you, what are you gonna do about that? How can we strategically fight off the devil? It's like they read their Bibles and took it seriously. But see, we've forgotten. Sort of overlook it now. Or maybe we've been deceived. It's been said that the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. Now, William, uh, excuse me, Wallace Stevens, in an article, he comments that the, the death of Satan, and, and by that he means our perception that Satan even really factors in or matters, we just sort of ignore him. The death of Satan was not only a tragedy of imagination, but the failure of imagination in the church. And when he speaks of imagination, he doesn't mean something that we imagine fictionally. What he's describing here is our ability to perceive biblical reality, like what actually is. We, we lack the imagination to read this and actually understand, perceive what's really going on. Our, our imaginations have become so diminished that what we do imagine, it's all this folksy, superstitious nonsense, and it no longer seems plausible to us. So, how many of you grew up watching Looney Tunes cartoons? Remember those? Looney Tunes, the best. Love those. Who's the devil in Looney Tunes? He's the little guy who sits on your shoulder. And he's got a pitchfork and horns and a little forked tail. And, and who's, who's the angel? He's the little, the little angel that sits on your other shoulder. He's got a halo and a harp. See, that is 
diminished imagination. When that is what we imagine of the spiritual realm, we sort of dismiss it like that. It becomes very easy to forget that we're actually in the midst of a spiritual battle right now. That there's something going on that we cannot perceive with our eyes and with our senses. There is a reality, a realm, that right now, that right now, is waging war over the hearts and souls of everyone even in this room. And so when, the, when Satan shows up, he's not a little guy sitting on Jesus' shoulder. No, no, he, he is the prince of darkness. He is the chief angel who fell from heaven, who led the rebellion against the God Almighty creator of the the world. He is the one who is the spiritual force of darkness who desires the annihilation of all of you and me, who desires the destruction of all things that are good in the world, all the things that God has created, everything. He wants it all gone and he would destroy God himself if he could. So when he shows up to tempt Jesus, this, this is serious business. This is the real, this is a showdown. When he shows up, he is taking on the Son of God. It's go time. It's game on. And the stakes couldn't possibly be higher because he has his sights set on Jesus, God's only Son. Now, this raises a question. And it's an important question that we often wrestle with with this passage. Can Jesus actually be tempted? Can Jesus be tempted in the same way or or in any meaningful way, the way that we understand being tempted? Because if he can't, well, this doesn't really pertain to us, right? And and the, the reason this question comes up is because remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so while you and I, we have inherited a, a sinful nature, this goes all the way back to the garden. We are, we are descendants of, of Adam and Eve, and it, sin, the sinful nature, this inner contamination of sin has been passed almost like a genetic trait all the way through all the generations. But Jesus, Jesus, though he is born of Mary, he's the son of God. And so Jesus does not have the same inner contamination, if you will, the same sinful nature. He is us as we should be in his humanity, Okay. So can Jesus, think about this, if Jesus doesn't have that same sinful nature, if he doesn't have that same inner contamination, that inner pull towards sin, can he really be tempted in any way that we could relate to? So let me, let me describe it this way. Here's my answer. Um, I love junk food. Anybody else? Junk food, junk food lovers. See your hands. Come on, don't be bashful. Thank you. We're in this together. Okay, so I love junk food. I have a few friends though, very few, Something is wrong with them. They don't like junk food. And I don't mean they've like trained themselves not to like junk food. I mean they legit don't like, they have no taste for it. They do not like junk food. Something, like I said, sick in the mind. Don't trust those people. I don't spend a lot of time with them. Mm, Okay. Now, if you want to tempt me with junk food, you know how easy that is? You put it in front of me. M&M's. Thank you, yes. Done. But my friends, my sick and twisted friends who don't like junk food, they may not have that same inner compulsion for junk food, but you can still tempt them. You just have to be crafty. You just got to think about it. Got to be strategic. 
You, you don't wait till they've just come from, back from a run and they're feeling all healthy and awesome. Like I said, I don't really like that. I shouldn't even call them friends. I don't even know. <laughs> That's not when you tempt them. No, no, no. You wait. You wait for the right time, that opportune moment, and you wait till they're at their most vulnerable, their weakest. Maybe they've had a horrible few days. They are at the bottom. They're depressed. They're struggling with life. Everything is going wrong. If you were an evil person and you wanted to tempt them to really get them to try some junk food, to eat it and just make themselves sick, that's what you would do, right? You would wait for that moment. Well, guess what Satan does? He doesn't come after Jesus when he's coming out of the Jordan River, having just been baptized and heard the voice of his father saying, you're my son whom I'm well pleased. No, 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 he waits. He waits for 40 days while Jesus walks around in a wilderness. He waits till he's miserable. I mean, can you imagine 40 days without food walking around the desert? Jesus can't have looked good He's worn out. He is psychologically beaten. He's exhausted. He's worn out. He's starving. And it's at that point that Satan shows up to tempt him. See, just because Jesus doesn't have that same inner contamination of sin that, that we have, that doesn't mean that he's any less tempted. Okay, in some ways, this temptation is even more intense, I would argue, because Satan is plotting, he is strategizing, and he's not sending the JV team, okay? This is Satan himself showing up to tempt Jesus. And what does he say? Verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, most of the time, probably the most common interpretation of what Satan is trying to do, okay, his strategy, his tactic here, is that Jesus is trying to, to cast doubt in Jesus' mind that he's really the son of God. And so the way, the way this is translated, for example, in my Bible and probably yours, is if you're the son of God, turn the stone into bread. In other words, if you're the son of God, prove it. Let me give you another way to read this, okay? It's not heretical, I promise. At the end of the day, you don't have to agree with me and it won't really matter too much. But I think there's something to this and so, let me share this with you. Okay, this Greek particle that is normally translated if in this passage can also be translated since. Since you're the son of God. And so what some scholars have suggested is that Satan is not trying to question Jesus' identity in order to get him to prove it, but instead he affirms Jesus' identity in order to get him to betray it. You see the difference? It's subtle. It sounds something like Satan would do, doesn't it? And so what does he do? He comes to Jesus. And Jesus, man, he's in the wilderness. Remember? You gotta picture this. He's miserable. He's, he's, he's wretched. He's starving. And Satan comes up and he says, oh, Jesus, buddy, why are you putting yourself through this? You're the son of God. You don't have to put up with this. I mean, if anybody deserves special treatment, it's you. You're like the ultimate VIP. You are the son of God. Jesus, you, you look horrible. That can't be fun, what you've been experiencing. My gosh, pamper yourself a little. You're starving. Make yourself a sandwich. I mean, what's the harm in that? 
Just make yourself a sandwich. You're the son of God. Who's to stop you from doing that? You can do it. We know you can. Just turn the stone into bread. What's stopping you? A number of years ago, um, Carrie and I uh, went with her company at the time. She was working for a, a, a financial firm here in Dallas. And it was before we had kids. And it was a pretty small company. They had 15, 16, maybe not even that many at that point. Maybe like 10, something like that. Very small company, but... Um, a uh, great company to work for. And uh, with only 10, it was a very small, you know, hierarchy, totem pole. You had the, the principals at the top, the guys who really uh, owned and ran the company, and then you had the guys who did all the money moving around, and then you had the support staff and accounting and computers, and that's where, where Carrie worked. And so they took all of us, though. I thought it was incredibly generous. They took all of us to this amazing retreat center, kind of a resort area, honestly, uh, in West Texas, and uh, it was beautiful. It was like five-star. I mean, and they paid for all of it. Super generous. But the first year that we went, they, they, the, res, the uh, resort made a mistake with the reservation. When they tried to make the reservation, they intended for everybody to have the same room, you know, the same kinds of rooms. So everybody was going to stay in the lodge, and everybody had the same kind of room. But somehow they got mixed up, and maybe they gave a room away, but somehow they ended up with one suite on the reservation. And so you can imagine, if, if you're the principals, you're the owners of the company, you're the guys who are treating everybody else to this, you're like, man, we should just, do you want it? Uh, maybe I'll take it. I mean, between the three of them, some, one of them is going to take the suite. But that's not what they did. They took everybody, everybody's name, top to bottom in the employee list, and they put them all in a hat to draw for who would get the suite. And Carrie and I spent a really nice weekend in that suite. <laughs> now think about that. They didn't have to do that. I mean, they're the principal, they're, they're the owners of the company, they're running this, they have the status, the title. This is the privilege that goes with that title. You get the suite, but they didn't take it. Instead, they took their status, their privilege, and they used it to elevate even their lowest employees. See, Jesus, he could have turned the stone into bread. He's God. <laughs> He's divine. He could do that. What's stopping him? But if he does that, he betrays himself. If he does that, at that point, he says, I'm better than everyone else. I get special treatment. If he does that, he is disassociating himself with the rest of us. He says, I don't have to play by your rules. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal, but think about it this way. If Jesus does that, if he turns the stone into bread, what does that do for the rest of his ministry? What does that do when he's teaching them to trust God? When he says, hey, let me, let me teach you how to pray, God, give us today our daily bread. And he says, let me tell you what that means, guys. It means that you need to trust God for your provision. That when life gets tough, when things are going hard, you can trust God, you can put your faith in him, and you know he is gonna provide for your needs. And they'd say, easy for you to say, Jesus. Easy for you. You can turn stone into bread whenever you feel like it. Must be nice. You know what? I'm gonna pass on that. Instead, I'm gonna do what you did, Jesus. I'm gonna take whatever privilege that my status offers me, whatever advantage I have, and I will use it absolutely to, for my own benefit. 
Because Jesus, that's what you did. If he turns the stone into bread, he loses all credibility. His ministry is dead in the water before it even gets started. Thankfully, that's not what he does. He resists that temptation. Verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Notice that even though the devil addresses him as the son of God, he responds as though he's one of us. Satan says, you're the son of God. You can do whatever you want. Turn the stone into bread. Pamper yourself, comfort yourself. Who cares about everyone else? And he says, I am the son of God, but I'm also one of them. All right, let's keep going. Verse five, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. He's kind of twisting the truth here a little bit, but we'll give it to him. Verse seven, so if you worship me, here's the bargain. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Worship me and I will give you all the power. I will give you all the success. I will give you all the authority. You'll be a big shot. Just worship me. Uh, J.R.L. Tolkien in his, uh, his trilogy, most famous trilogy, uh, you know, The Lord of the Rings. Probably a lot of you have read those. Maybe you've seen the movies. One of the driving themes, the central theme within those works is the allure of power. Now, if, if you've never read the books or never seen the movie, let me give you just a snippet here. It, it centers around this one ring. And the ring is called the Ring of Power. And what it does, and this is why everybody wants to get their hands on it, is it gives you power. Makes sense, right? Ring of power. If you have it, you have power. And not only that, but it actually augments the power that you have beyond anything you could possibly imagine. So to the point that you could become invincible, undefeatable. You can conquer anyone. No one can touch you. And so everyone, the good guys, the bad guys, everybody wants to get their hands on the ring. But there are several moments where Frodo, who's the little hobbit who's entrusted with the ring, he offers the ring to a few people. He says, here, do you want the ring? I will give you the ring. And they all refuse. Because these few who are not chasing the ring, they know that even, even if they were gonna use that ring of power for good, that it would consume them and it would turn them evil just like the dark Lord Sauron. And what Tolkien is getting at here, and what he understood, is that when we crave power, then it has become an idol. We worship it. And just like any other idol, it will consume us, and it will turn us into devils. See, at one level, Satan wants Jesus to worship him, right? Look closely at this temptation here. Satan says, worship me, but here's, here's the catch. You get power. This is what he's luring him in, but you get power. So what is he tempting Jesus with? The temptation isn't to worship Satan, not really. The temptation is to do anything you can to get power. What would you do for power? See, Satan knows that Jesus isn't gonna just freely choose to worship him. He doesn't love Satan. Satan's his enemy. But what if Jesus loves power so much, he desires it so much, that he would be willing to sell his soul for it, to become a devil himself? See, that's the bargain, that's the test. 
Here's what's really diabolical. You ready for this? Satan's not stupid. You know what he's really saying here? If you look closely, what he knows is that if you crave power like that, if you worship power, if you would give anything, even your own soul for power, if that's your God, then what you will discover is that you were actually serving Satan all along. You were worshiping him and you didn't even know it. Which is why Jesus replies, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says, I won't worship you because I don't worship power. I won't serve you because I don't need power the way that you're offering me power. I do not crave power. I will worship and I will serve only the Father. And he resists. Moving on, verse nine. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, notice Satan here is quoting scripture. This is from the Psalms. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. He says, Jesus, you keep quoting scripture at me. I can quote scripture back at you. Watch me. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Can I give you a little encouragement for the morning? Uh, Watch out for people who quote scripture for their own ends. Who use scripture in a way that is contrary to the heart of God. Can I give you one more little bit of encouragement here? Just because you quote scripture, that doesn't necessarily mean you're godly. It might just mean you're demonic. You're welcome. That's, that, how's that just your encouragement? That's your, that was in your daily bread for this morning. I, I, just, I try to encourage people wherever I go. Ray of sunshine. There you go. All right. So look at, what, look at what Satan is saying here. Look at what he's saying. I love this. He says, Jesus, since you're the son of God, man, you can do anything. God will do anything for you. But you know what? There's a problem. Not everybody knows you're the son of God. Jesus, you're the son of God, but, but not everybody knows that. You know what we should do? We gotta find a way to get the word out. We need to get attention on you. We want everybody to know that you are the son of God and then you will have, you want followers, right? Jesus, we're gonna get followers for you. You just, I got an idea. You go up to the temple, you throw yourself down, the heavens open up, angels come down and save you and everybody will know. They will all know that you are the son of God. Man, people will be talking about you. Everybody will tell their friends. They will come rushing to follow you. You'll go viral. I mean, people will be following you on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Build your platform, Jesus. Build your brand. Just make a spectacle. Throw yourself down and everybody will talk about you. You will be a star. You'll be a celebrity. Um, a few years ago, I was trying to find this earlier on my phone. I couldn't find it. If one of you finds it, you can, you can uh, tell me later. There was a service that was offered where you could feel like a celebrity for a day. Have you seen this? You could hire them and they would send out pretend paparazzi to follow you around. So you could feel like a celebrity and they pull up in a limo and there's camera flashes and everything and, and you go to some restaurant and they're flashing, you know, everybody's talking about you and you can f- experience what it is to feel like a celebrity. Now that might sound a little extreme. Most of us here probably wouldn't do that. Um, but hang on. 
Uh, Nicholas Carr, in his book, The Shallows, he, he talks about how social media has so changed the landscape of, of our society and our culture that now it's possible for any of us to feel like a celebrity in our own, in our own minds, if I can put it this way. See, it used to be that if you wanted to be a celebrity, you probably needed to be on TV, right? Remember that? You would be on TV or a movie, but you don't have to do that anymore. Now you can get on Twitter or Facebook and Instagram, and you can immediately let everyone know what's going on with you. And so this is what Nicholas Carr writes. He says, what exactly are we broadcasting? The minutia of our lives. The moment-by-moment answer of what is, in Twitterland, the most important question in the world that everyone's asking you. What are you doing? Or to say four characters, what you doing? Twitter is the telegraph of narcissists. Not only are you the star of the show, but everything that happens to you, no matter how trifling, is a headline, a media event, a stop the press's bulletin. You're a star. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, I don't have Twitter. <laughs> I'm not even on social media, so I'm good, right? Not so fast. See, what Carr is getting at here, this temptation, really at the heart of it, this temptation is the same temptation that goes all the way back to the garden, that we are tempted to be our own gods. And see, in in our present world, nothing captures this notion of self-idolization quite like celebrity. See, our perception of celebrities is that, that they get to do anything they want. Now, whether or not they do is a completely different conversation. I'm talking about our perception of celebrity, of what that means to us. It means that they have the status. They have the privilege. They, have, they are the VIPs, and they have the power to get and do whatever they want, and they have the platforms where everybody knows their name. Everybody knows what they're doing. People are following them around and worshiping them. They're famous. They're stars. They are the demigods of our world. And we want in. There's part of us that wants in because all of us, since the garden, we all, we all want to be gods. And in a sense, this, what I'll call celebritized idea of deity, this, this is really what Satan is selling here. To, to use our position, our status, that's what he's tempting Jesus with. Use your status, use your privilege to make life better for yourself, to to use your power for yourself, to disassociate yourself from all those little people because we're stars. Jesus, you're you're the biggest star there is. Just just take advantage of it. That's what Satan is peddling, to feel special, superior to everybody else. But Jesus isn't buying. Verse 12, Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus doesn't need to force his father's hand. He's not interested in instant gratification of of internet fame. He's not interested in this type of glory. Instead, he says, I'm gonna trust my father that he will bring glory to me in his own time. Now, here's what I want you to see, okay? Everybody with me? Hang, Hang with me. I know I'm going a little long here. Don't look at your watches just because I said that. Come on. This is important. Jesus, in each one of these temptations, what he resists is the temptation to play God the way that we would play God. To play God the way that we would be gods. Because if we were gods, we would use all of that for ourselves. 
we would use our, 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 our status, our, our privilege, we'd use our position, we'd use our power, we'd use our platform, we'd use all of that for ourselves. And what Jesus is resisting is the temptation to play God in the way that we would play God. Because that's not the kind of God he is. That's not who he is. He's not a celebrity God. If you wanna know who Jesus really is, you wanna understand who Jesus is, you have to look at verse 13. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. See, all these other temptations they are pointing, they are foreshadowing the final temptation, the real temptation. And if you look through the book of Luke, there's no other place where the devil explicitly tempts Jesus, and yet it's woven throughout, if you just look closely. But the opportune time comes at the end, the final temptation. When Jesus, in the garden, as the, as the soldiers come to arrest him, and then he is taken by them, by, and they take him and they put him up in a trial for Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders, at any point, at any point, at that time, and even when they begin to, to beat him and mock him and flog him and crucify him, at any time, Jesus could have said, don't you know who I am? I'm the son of God. You can't do this to me. He could have played the ultimate VIP card. He could have said, hey, I am the son of God. You think you're messing with me? Think again, we're done here. We're done. All the world, you're on your own. Good luck with your sin and all of that, but I'm out. Son of God, mic drop, no more. He could have said, hey, you want to see power? Oh, let me show you some power. And he could have gone all Captain America on them and killed all of them. It's probably against the hero code for Captain America to kill them, but, but you're tracking with me, right? He could have said, hey, that's it, and he mows them down. This is the power of the Almighty God released from heaven onto all of them, and he kills all of them. That's what I would have done. How about you? He could have done that. I am the son of God. You think you're gonna touch me? Please. He could have called the armies of heaven down, surrounded himself with an army of angels, and as he sat there in perfect comfort, could have said, oh, by the way, worship me, and believe me, everyone would have fallen down in a heap at his feet. But he didn't. He resisted. And he said, I will not use who I am and all the privilege, all the power, all the everything that I have that I could use for myself, I will not do it. And he resisted saving even himself to save us instead. That's who Jesus is. That's the kind of God he is. Let me give you the good news and the bad news. You ready? This is it. Here's the bad news. I don't see a lot of this kind of resistance in our world today. How about you? I don't see a lot of people who are using their status to elevate other people. I don't see a lot of people who are, are giving away power. I see a lot of people hoarding power. I see a lot of people fighting over power so we can defeat those other folks. I see a lot of people who are building their own platforms and building their own kingdoms. We are falling down the mountain and we are picking up speed and I see very little resistance. And I have no idea, God only knows where we'll end up. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We can resist. We can resist. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the spirit of the living God in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. The Holy Spirit, who through his power raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is in you. And if you're a believer, then he has already used that power in your life to, for once and for all, conquer sin and death for all of eternity. It's already been done. But you can experience that now. Today, you can experience through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can resist There is a resistance. There are people who are resisting. I I know people, I bet you do too. I know folks who, man, they are, they are big shots. They have status. They have all kinds of privileges and perks that they could use for themselves, but you know what? Instead, they use them to elevate other people. I know people who are not hoarding power. They have tons of power and yet they are giving it away. They are using it to serve the powerless. I know people who have national platforms, but they are using those platforms, that fame, they use it to bring glory to God. And I know others who've said, that's not for me. And they serve in obscurity because they don't need followers. They don't need man's approval. They're just trying to get God's. See, there, there is a resistance. And on our best days, it's called the church. We can resist. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We can resist. We serve a God who resisted saving himself for us. He resisted for our sakes. We can resist. But listen, if we are gonna look like Jesus, we gotta start trying. If we're gonna look like Jesus, we have to fight that urge. We have to fight that gravitational pull that is taking us places we don't wanna go and turning us into people that we don't want to be and we have to push back. We have to resist the desire to serve only ourselves and live only for our own interests and our own benefits. And it's subtle because it's that gravitational pull. All you have to do is nothing. Nobody says, oh, by the way, you're in free fall. You just are. You gotta resist because we are, listen to me, we're not celebrities. We're not called to be celebrities. That's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. We can't act like celebrities. We can't treat ourselves like celebrities. We can't imagine ourselves as celebrities, as these demigods and look at all like Jesus. Jesus is not a celebrity God. He is not the guy on the red carpet in the tuxedo. He is the guy washing the feet of the guy who cleans up the party afterwards. That's Jesus. And if you wanna look like him, that's what you look like too. We can resist, we can, because God is with us. And there is a resistance, and on our best days, it's us. It's called the church. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Forgive us that we so easily get caught up. We so easily get caught up in the, in the the current of the world. We so easily get caught up just falling down the mountain. All we gotta do is nothing. But Lord, we wanna resist. Help us to resist. Help us to keep our eyes focused upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us 
to lean into your spirit, to be filled with your spirit so that we can resist, we can fight that urge to look like everybody else, to be our own gods, and instead, as Jesus did, resist for the sake of others. Because God, we don't wanna go where that's going, and we don't wanna be the people that that makes us. We wanna be like you. Transform us, change us, give us the power, even today, even today, to resist. We love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.